Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. As always, I hope everyone is well and staying safe. I did not have much time this week to record this episode, so I'm recording it very early Saturday, May 9th. So if it sounds like I just woke up, I have. <laughs> I, I do have my cup of coffee, so I think that I will be able to get through this without uh, falling over. So as we all know, as constant readers, Stephen King released a new book of four short stories at the end of April called If It Bleeds. I was in a bit of a reading slump last month, but this book really brought me out of it. And I thought I would give you guys my quick review. It is spoiler free, but if you want to skip ahead a bit, I will not be offended. So as much as I adore uh, King's full-length novels, obviously with The Stand being my favorite, I think his strength truly lies in short stories and novellas. If It Bleeds is just another example of that. And it has four new stories. All of them captured my full attention. Okay, maybe my half attention. There was one that I kind of, I'll get to that. (laughs) But it's been a while since I've taken a book to bed and stayed up past, you know, that moment where my eyelids begin to droop because I couldn't wait to see how it ended. So the first story is called Mr. Hannigan's Phone. And I really loved this story. It's beautiful. It was about growing up and remembering and clinging to the memory of those who helped us become who we are long after they've gone. And of course, this is King. So there is an element of the supernatural and a touch of horror. And there were more than a few passages that really did make me kind of shiver. They gave me chills. The second story is called The Life of Chuck. And I have to say, the way he published these three acts really worked for me. The first act caught my attention immediately, and the following two acts only made the first act all the more poignant. Um, I love the thought that maybe we're all carrying our own, you know, worlds inside of us, as he mentions in the author's note later. And by the end of the story, I was sad to say goodbye to Chuck as well. If It Bleeds um, is the third story, and this story revolves around Holly Gibney, who you guys may uh, recognize as being in the Mr. Mercedes trilogy and in The Outsider. And I loved both of those. Uh, I love the trilogy. I love The Outsider. And I really do enjoy Holly Gibney. So I was very excited to read about Holly's first solo outing. And I did like If It Bleeds, but this was the only story in the entire book that felt a bit long to me. Uh, It dragged in some places, and it did take me a few days to actually finish. Um, I think this was the longest story in the book as well. Uh, We get a lot of Holly's backstory, and I was glad that King wrote it, even if I was maybe a little underwhelmed by the quote-unquote creature, uh, monster villain, whatever you decide you want to call it. And the last story called Rat, as someone who has been... (laughs) 
struggling to write and finish my own novel. This one hit a bit close to home in various ways, and I wonder if this is how a lot of potential authors feel. The Be Careful What You Wish For um, is a tried and true plot device, if you ask me, and King does a really fantastic job with it. I liked Drew, the main character, even when he was being irrational and selfish, and the rat in question was a very nasty little rodent, and I loved it. So I think for Mr. Hannig, out of five stars, I'd gave Mr. Hannigan's phone five. I would give The Life of Chuck four. If It Bleeds, I gave three, and Rat, I gave four and a half. And I think all in all, if I were to just review or rate the book as a whole, I would say um, it's a four and a half star read for me. Uh, I think I took the half star off just for my slight disinterest in Holly's story. And I just think I could devour a book of short stories from Stephen King any day of the week. Um, Night Shift is one of my absolute favorite books by him. And, you know, Skeleton Crew. And it's just, I just think that him having this restricted kind of condensed time to tell his story benefits him. Which is probably funny coming from me, considering my favorite book by him is his longest book. But I really do think that his best writing comes in his short stories. So back to his longest book, The Stand. So to recap chapter 50, Glenn and Stu discuss how to reform society in Boulder. Mother Abigail understands she's going to be a part of that, but her real focus is on the dark man. An ad hoc committee is formed of seven people. Stu, Fran, Ralph Brentner, Nick Andros, Dick Ellis, Sue Stern, and Glenn Bateman. Originally, this list included Harold, but Nick made the executive decision to remove Harold due to the fact that he simply didn't trust him. Mother Abigail and Nadine finally come face to face, and it's a tense confrontation that leaves both women feeling out of sorts and a little confused. Larry tracks down Fran while looking for Harold and tells her the story of how he and his group followed Harold's directions from a gunquit to Boulder. Fran warns Larry that Harold has changed and she's not sure it's for the better. It scares her. And finally, Harold has begun keeping a journal of his own, already plotting revenge on Stu and Boulder before he heads west to join Flag. In Chapter 51... Ralph's posters for the August 18th meeting go up around Boulder. People want to know if Mother Abigail will be participating in the committee, and while she says to do so would be too tiring for her, uh, she would give them whatever help that she could. It also seems like this meeting was bringing people together, transforming a loose group of refugees into potential voters again, and people like that. Ralph, Stu, and Nick seem to think that they can have the power back up and running by September. So Larry and Leo, formerly known as Joe, uh, they head off to meet Harold, and they find Harold outside of his house building a brick wall around a flower bed. Larry greets him, and this startles Harold. He swings around with a trowel raised like a weapon. And it says, out of the corner of his eye, Larry thought he saw Leo flinch backward. His first thought was, sure enough, Harold didn't look at all as he had imagined. His second thought had to do with the trowel. My God, is he going to let me have it with that thing? Harold's face was grimly set, his eyes narrow and dark. His hair fell in a lank wave across his sweaty forehead. His lips were pressed together and almost white. And then there was a transformation so sudden and complete that Larry was never quite able to believe afterward that he had seen that tense, unsmiling Harold 
the face of a man more apt to use a trowel to wall someone up in the basement niche than to construct a garden wall around a flower bed. Harold smiles and greets Larry, and Larry cannot help but think of how young Harold is, much younger than himself, and Larry explains how he followed Harold's directions from Maine, which pleases Harold, who invites Larry and Leo inside for a drink. But Leo's backed off, and when Larry tries to coax Leo inside, Leo says he wants to leave. He wants to find Nadine, Mom. Leo seems very uncomfortable where he is, but all he can say is he just wants to go back, so Larry lets him. He joins Harold inside and gives him the wine that he had brought to France the night before, along with the payday bars. And Harold accepts the wine, but turns down the candy bars, as he's been trying to lose weight. While Harold goes into the basement to find some cups for the wine, Larry notices a stone in the fire hearth is out of place. So he's curious, and he picks it up, and inside the hole he sees the ledger, Harold's journal. Larry puts the stone back before Harold can return, um, and the fit is perfect now. The two men drink and talk, and Larry explains that he would have thought Harold would have been on the ad hoc committee. He seems like the kind of guy... Uh, that they could use. And Harold does not seem bothered by this. He's thinking they probably thought he was too young, but you know, who knows what lies in the future. Every dog has its day, after all. When Larry leaves Harold's house, he's struck that Harold's house has its curtains drawn. And there are a number of homes in Boulder that are the same, but those houses are of the dead. When they got sick, they had drawn their curtains against the world. They had drawn them and died in privacy, like any animal in its last extremity prefers to do. The living, maybe in subconscious acknowledgement of that fact of death, threw their shutters and their curtains wide. Larry comes upon Leo, who was waiting for him a few blocks down. He had wanted to walk home with Larry, so he had waited. Larry asks Leo why he didn't want to go into Harold's house, and after a bit of coaxing, Leo says that he only feels one way about Harold, and that's scared. Leo wonders if Harold keeps his blinds closed because he's praying to the dark man. And this startles Larry. And Leo comments on just how much Harold smiles. He's not like us. He smiles a lot. But I think there might be worms inside him making him smile. Big white worms eating up his brain like maggots. They come upon Dana and Leo runs to her asking for gum, leaving Larry to think about Leo's observation. Stu finds Fran in their backyard washing clothes in a low wash tub. Stu says that he may be able to find her a washboard at least, but he doesn't know why Fran even bothers washing clothes, where there are stores everywhere full of them. Fran does not want to toss out perfectly good clothes just because they're dirty, and that's no way to start over. Stu explains to Fran that they need to talk, and he tells her that Dick Ellis asked to be taken off the committee, frankly because his plate is full. Being a veterinarian, he's really the only doctor in Boulder, and he's still learning while dealing with a lot of issues that are cropping up, like food poisoning, gangrene, and the flu. The regular flu, of course. Lori Constable is helping him, but Dick doesn't think he can give 100% to the committee while dealing with everything else. And Ralph had suggested replacing Dick with Larry Underwood. Apparently, Judge Ferris had also given Larry a good recommendation. And Fran suggests that maybe Stu should just go talk to Larry. She also suggests that Stu ask Larry what he thought of Harold. 
Stu wonders if Fran still feels responsible for Harold, and Fran admits that maybe she does a little bit, um, and she does feel a little guilty. Like Leo, Stu says he doesn't like it when Harold smiles, but he doesn't think Harold is the kind to plot revenge when Fran brings that up, and Fran thinks that maybe he's just scared and lonely, maybe a little jealous. Fran explains how she thinks he's changed, how he tried to be a man after the flu hit, Then he changed again, starting to smile all the time, and you couldn't really talk to him anymore. He was in himself, the way people get when they convert to religion or read something that changes their lives. This particular thought seems to trigger something in Fran, although she doesn't voice it to Stu. Fran is definitely shaken, though, but she suggests to Stu to go see Larry before the meeting of the ad hoc committee that night. At Larry and Lucy's house, Larry explains to Stu his feelings on Harold. He explains how Harold had initially looked when Larry spoke to him. He thought that this dude is going to kill me, but then he changed so quickly. How he had been pleasant and a good host, but that first impression is strong. Stu asks Larry about joining the ad hoc committee. He says that Judge Ferris recommended him as well, and Larry accurately guesses that the committee may not be temporary, and Stu admits that they would like to see their committee stand for election full term. Larry agrees to join, and Stu invites him to his and Fran's place that night to meet. But when Larry asks about bringing Lucy, Stu says no, and that Larry can't really talk about their meetings with Lucy either. They're wanting to keep some of this stuff close for a while, and Larry is not too big on secrets. He says, I think what happened in June happened because too many people were playing it a little too close. That wasn't any act of God. That was an act of pure human fuckery. Stu agrees, but he asks if Larry would feel the same if it was wartime. Because they don't think that the dark man everyone has been dreaming about has gone away. They know everyone has been shell-shocked, so no one is talking about him right now, but they can't assume that the dark man is gone. But if Abigail is there, then the dark man is there too. Mother Abigail says it's not over, and it won't be over one way or the other until he's got them or they've got him. So Larry does agree to attend the meeting. And when Stu is leaving, Larry tells him about Leo, how he and Lucy sort of share him with Nadine, and how Nadine is a little out of the ordinary herself. He says Leo sort of sees into people, and he wouldn't go into Harold's house, and that's sort of funny, isn't it? Stu agrees that it is, and they share a look before Stu finally leaves to head home. Back at Fran and Stu's place, Fran finds her journal, the one that she hadn't written in for a while. She feels scared and a bit jumpy, and she opens the book and starts to read. Now she's noticing all of the horrible things she has said about Harold, and why? To what end? What purpose did that serve? Fran seems to realize that she had been awful to him, at least in her thoughts and in her journal. And then she finds it, a dark, smeared thumbprint on the edge of the page, a thumbprint from chocolate, a payday bar. She's not sure what to think now. Even if Harold read her journal, that didn't mean he was planning revenge. But she does know that Harold has changed. But had he changed that much? It doesn't seem like she's very sure, and she doesn't seem to want to think about it at that moment. Next, there are some excerpts from the minutes of the ad hoc committee. August 13th, 1990. I'm only going to touch on the important parts here. They vote on putting up posters, per Dick Ellis, about foods to avoid eating to try and keep the cases of food poisoning low. 
Sue Stern suggests creating a burial committee to get rid of the dead bodies left behind in Boulder, more for health reasons, but also because, you know, it's the right thing to do. They agree that they will take Mother Abigail into complete confidence about what goes on in the meetings. Abigail wants to be involved with anything having to do with the dark man or the adversary, as Glenn continues to call him. The committee agrees not to discuss the theological or religious or supernatural implications of the dark man during the meetings. They agree that the main business of the committee is the question of how to deal with flag and that they will keep this close to the vest. And then Nick proposes that they send three volunteers west to join the dark man's people in Vegas. They want to gain intelligence about what's going on over there. Sue immediately volunteers, but Glenn protests, saying that no one on the committee should do it, because then they would have to replace her with someone new, who would have to be briefed on everything that they've covered already, and they just don't have the time for that. They won't know what is to be learned until the scouts return. It's like they're fishermen using human bait. The committee then decides to choose the people that they want to ask, and after a lot of discussion and argument, they settle on Judge Ferris, suggested by Larry. Uh, for his intelligence and, yes, his age. Sue Stern uh, suggests that they send Dana Jurgens, And Nick suggests Tom Cullen. And it's Tom that causes the biggest debate here. Nick explains that Flagg will not expect someone like Tom to be a spy. They may assume that they sent Tom out of Boulder because of his disability and that maybe Tom is angry with them and wants to get back at them by giving Flagg all of this information. The only real imperative would be that Tom not change his story no matter what. Nick says Tom is not stupid. Nick can give him simple rules to follow and memorize, and Tom will listen and hold true to them. Nick explains how Tom seems to be able to hypnotize himself to make connections in his mind. They would give him a post-hypnotic suggestion of when to come back, perhaps on the full moon. Sue wonders if they can program Tom not to give any information on what they're doing, but Glenn suggests that they probably don't need to. If he's asked, what can he say? The committee is keeping their business to themselves as it relates to Flag, and they're not doing anything else Flag probably couldn't guess on his own. So Glenn seconds Nick's motion on Tom, but Fran is very upset. She thinks it's too brutal to send Tom out there when he could be tortured or killed. She says, do you really want to take that sweet foggy boy and turn him into a human U2 plane? Don't any of you understand that's the same as starting all the old shit over again? Can't you see that? What do we do if they kill him, Nick? What do we do if they kill all of them? An improved version of Captain Trips? Nick knows this, and yes, it has affected him. But he truly believes that they have to use any means at their disposal to end the threat. If anyone is to create a new strand of Captain Trips, it would be Flag. So they take a vote and everyone but Stu and Fran vote yes on sending Tom. Fran decides to change her vote to yes, as does Stu, just to show a united front. So once everyone is gone, Stu and Fran go to bed, and Stu is thinking about sending the three across the mountains to to Vegas, and it's a dirty business, but Nick is right that it needs to be done. So when Stu falls asleep, Fran lays awake. She has made her piece about Tom Cullen, but she's still thinking about that smudged chocolate thumbprint. Every dog has its day, Fran. Fran considers telling Stu what she found, but she decides to wait. If there was a problem, it was her problem. She would just have to wait 
watch, and see if anything happened. It was a long time before she slept. So now that we're in Boulder, things are just skipping along and things are being set in motion. Larry finally meets Harold, and I'm not sure it's the kind of meeting Larry expected. He did find Harold to be pleasant, sure, but there's also the matter of that look on Harold's face when he and Leo approached him. A murderous look. And Larry compares Harold to a politician with how he speaks and smiles. Leo seems to be a good judge of character himself because he does not want anything to do with Harold. It does make me wonder what Leo thinks about Nadine. He calls her Nadine mom, so he seems comfortable still with her. He wants to see her. So I don't think that Nadine is as far gone as perhaps Harold is at this point. And you know, Larry feels it too. There is something off about Harold. And Larry found Harold's ledger in the stone hearth. Larry doesn't read any of it. Um, I don't think he had the time to even consider reading it. He did feel a little bit of shame that he had looked in the first place. But he does wonder if this ledger belonged to Harold and what on earth could it say? that he's hiding it in his, in his own house. Larry's also asked to join the ad hoc committee once Dick Ellis has to drop out of it. And it makes sense. A veterinarian struggling to be a doctor would be a full-time job, especially at the end of the world, and no doubt a scary one. So I can see why he wouldn't have the time to give the committee the attention that it probably needed. It's interesting that Stu and Fran are both interested in what Larry thinks of Harold, as if that might somehow tip them off to Larry's true nature. Although somehow, you know, I think Larry understands that Leo sees into Harold and what he sees makes him uneasy. Larry also seems to acknowledge now that there's something not quite right about Nadine either. But we do get our first ad hoc committee here. And for me, this is the most important part of the chapter. We see how these seven people are interacting and talking to each other and debating these things and what kind of, you know, items that they're already voting on, probably with the understanding that they will be permanent fixtures in the committee, even after the community meeting on the 18th. They will discuss the dark man together, but not the theological or supernatural aspects of him. And this is probably for the best. Leave the religious implications with Mother Abigail. Um, that can cause things to get a bit fuzzy. So discussions of the dark man will be kept confidential, of course, because there's no need to panic people, right? And I think Larry did have a good point because that's what happened when the super flu got out. People held the information close to their chest, but after everything that everyone has gone through, is it worth bringing up flag as another probably more deadly and terrifying threat? Would people run from Boulder? Possibly. So I get the idea that it's better to keep their discussions within the within the committee rather than, you know, breaching that particular topic in a, you know, community-wide meeting. But on the other hand, again, I can kind of see where they are kind of falling into behaviors of the world before the super flu, kind of like um, them deciding what information other people need to hear, even if that information could possibly affect everybody. And of course, the proposal to send three scouts out to Vegas to garner some intelligence on what Flag is doing or preparing to do. And they all have their reasons for who they suggest. You know, Larry believes Judge Ferris is sharp as a tack. And given his age, would Flag's people really suspect him of being a spy? 
Larry is pretty blatant with the fact that Ferris is older, and if they lose him, they haven't lost somebody with 50 good years in front of him. And the only argument to this is Fran says it is a brutal observation, um, but nobody else really protests. Dana's nomination goes through fairly easy. And of course, Tom's nomination is the one that brings up all of the questions and protests. And it seems like Nick wants to use Tom's ability to self-hypnotize. Nick seems very confident that, you know, Tom will hold true to the directions that they're given. And they can use hypnosis for him to know when it's time to come back. Even if they were to try and get information from Tom out west about Boulder, he wouldn't have much to tell them, as he's not included in the conversations about the dark man. Um, that doesn't mean that he couldn't be tortured or killed, but Tom seems like a safe choice for a spy. The people out west aren't likely to believe that someone like Tom would be a spy. Nick has all the confidence in the world for him, um, which is very sweet, but I also understand Fran's apprehension. Someone like Tom may not know exactly what he's in for, and could they live with himself themselves if Tom was found out, if he was tortured or killed, or any of them could be tortured or killed? It seems like a very real possibility, and it almost seems like a suicide mission. And if that's the case, like, what are they getting out of this? You know, what if something happens to them on the way there? What if something happens to them on the way back? This is what I was wondering, because they don't seem to have any backup ideas. They're simply asking these three to go west to volunteer. So what if one of them says no? And they would be well within their rights to do so, because I don't think I would do it. <laughs> And last but not least, it seems that Fran has finally figured out why Harold has changed so much. Why he's smiling all the time, and very difficult to talk to anymore. She fears he's read her diary, and she finds his thumbprint, or what could be his thumbprint, on a page in her journal. Harold read it at night, so it's possible that he left the smudge without seeing it before returning it to her bag. And if he read all of the horrible things Fran wrote about him, then he may have a reason to be plotting something. Every dog has its day, after all, and she wants to assure herself that Harold would never. But again, this is not the Harold from a gunquit. She has no idea what he's thinking, or what he's even capable of anymore. And I wonder if she would ever consider just going to him and apologizing. She says she feels guilty about what happened, about being with Stu, a little anyway, but it seems that... All Fran has ever felt towards Harold is pity and revulsion. So how could this trajectory change if she talks to him as a friend? Could she acknowledge what she wrote about him in her journal was unfair and wrong? Was it unfair and wrong? Fran seems content with letting things go for now, just to see if anything happens, but that feels like a really bad idea to me. Probably because, you know, we already know what's going on in Harold's mind, so avoiding the issue seems like it's only going to make this worse. Then again, if Fran did go and talk to Harold and apologize, would that even change anything? Harold seems to have made up his mind. Society is finally coming together in this chapter, and we will eventually have the community-wide meeting. So even if things are going smoothly now, what will happen when you bring in hundreds or thousands into the mix? Will the survivors in Boulder agree to elect the ad hoc committee to a permanent committee? And where does Abigail fit into all of this? Because she is the common denominator here. She is the reason why people are in Boulder. And a lot of them will not stand for any committee that does not include her. So um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, her role in all of this. But that is actually going to be answered next week in Chapter 52. 
So that's it for this episode of The Circle Opens. This chapter had quite a bit going on, but I think the most important part of it was the three scouts that they've chosen to send west. And Fran finally realizing um, that Harold probably read her diary. Uh, She's not really dealing with the implications of what that could mean at the moment, but I have a feeling that will escalate fairly quickly. But as with everything else, we'll just have to wait and see. If you are enjoying the podcast, it would be amazing if you could leave me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com, or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And that's really all I have for you guys this week. I hope you enjoyed my very quick review of If It Bleeds. And if you've read it or you're going to be reading it soon, let me know what you guys think of it. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope that you guys too do too. And um, yeah, I made it through the morning. I'm only halfway through my cup of coffee after this episode's over, so I might need to go get a refill. (laughs) So I hope you guys stay safe. I hope you guys are well. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.